Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself And there's some stories I can tell you Welcome once again to The Final Word, presenting the Guardian's Ashes podcast, and uh, the ashes at last are over. There's a certain sense of relief in some quarters, and you know, perhaps a, a sense of sadness in others. Uh, my name's Jeff Lemon, and Adam Collins is with me, and, and sort of looking back on it all, Adam, there's a, a, there's a kind of unfulfilled feeling about this ashes, and I, I don't know why, you know, 800,000 people came and watched the test matches in person, millions watched it on TV, and yet we're sort of left feeling... Like it was a little bit of an anticlimax. Yeah, good day, Jeff. Yeah, there is that, that feeling, isn't there? And the fact that we're doing it with about a week's perspective due to the fact you've been in hospital most of the time since the last time we spoke, to be fair, <laughs> uh, does uh, lend itself to a bit of deeper thinking today. But I tend to agree. It's that um, we had this remarkably successful series for by every credible marketing and measurable metric and whatever else. But yet there does feel as though we missed the trick. And it, perhaps even the fact that England played so well in the limited overs opener last night. I know they're different formats of the game different personnel, all the rest, but it makes you wonder what could have been had they had a bit of success early in the series. That also means it's the last Guardian Ashes podcast, but it's not the last final word. We will continue through the year with a mix of long-form interviews and analysis and stupidity, depending on our mood. Uh, Some episodes may be on the Guardian, some may not, but you can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, any of the other apps by looking for the Final Word Cricket Podcast. I believe Google Play is on the way. Might be a few days before that's up. If you can't find us, search again a little bit later, or you can email finalwordcricket at gmail.com with questions, or find me or Adam on Twitter. For now, we do get the advantage here of taking the helicopter view. We decided not to jump in with the hot takes immediately after the series mm. was done, mostly because I was dying, but that also <laughs> had the um, the knock-on benefit that we can now look at things from a, a slightly higher perspective. And, of course, a, a man with the broadest perspective of all, we're very lucky to have with us BBC Test Match Specials, Daniel Norcross. Welcome, Daniel. Oh, welcome. I've wanted to do this for years. Well, yeah, I mean, it's only been going about three months. but <laughs> <laughs> I knew it would happen. <laughs> you had a feeling somewhere, somewhere deep in the marrow of your body but, you know, you were here as the English uh, observer of, of this series. One well, of very many, yeah, yes. One of a lot. Was this your first Ashes tour? Yeah, it's my first Ashes tour. I came to Australia in 98-9, saw a test match at Sydney, the one when the third umpire cheated and allowed Slater to stay in when he was about a yard out. But uh, that's my only experience of test cricket in Australia. So uh, this has been magnificent. I've seen every test into every venue. There is a poignancy, I think, to the end of the Ashes. It always is. I remember going into the press box when the Sydney test had finished and I saw the serried ranks of scribblers 
both Australian and English, and they all looked like it had gone on about two weeks too long, and they wanted it over, and they were desperate, and there were sort of hugs, and it's, thank heavens, it's finished. <laughs> and I didn't feel like that at all. I just wanted more. I always want more Test cricket. I think England could play Australia every day for the rest of my life, and I'd be strangely happy. I, I used to have that feeling as a spectator. The previous Ashes cycle in 13, 14, I wasn't working full-time in cricket, and I'd get to the end of the Melbourne Test or the Sydney Test at the back end of an Ashes series, and it was with great lament that I wanted more, but being on the other side of the ball, and maybe this is reflective of the cricket as well and, and the fairly drab final two Test matches we have, I was in that, that group of scribblers who were, were ready to say our goodbyes and bid farewell to the series. I didn't feel anything at the end, and I'm, that might say more about me than it does about what we had in front of us. Well, no, I, I think it's partly we do different disciplines, and if you're trying to find things to write about, it got harder and harder that mm. series, and I guess that's that's partly what we're going to talk about mm. because there was such repetition. People were getting out the same way. The same issues were bedeviling both sides, actually, in their own ways. So uh, I think if you're going to try to write stuff about that, it would drive you insane. As an observer, as a broadcaster, it's a little bit like the poker player or the bridge player. You always think the next hand is going to be great. Mm. Something's going to crop up and it's going to be, you know, and that's sort of what gets you out of bed every day and makes you really enjoy the process of broadcasting. But this series, I can see objectively, suffered from too little surprise. Murray Nally always getting out when Nathan Lyon bowled a straight ball. James Vince always getting out when he, he never played and missed. He didn't play and missed the entire series. He played and scored, or he played and edged. <laughs> and that was it. You know, those, it was, he, was, he did, existed in a, in a binary world. And when you're trying to describe it yet again, I mean, you do find yourself broadcasting and saying, when you're doing the summary, you say, well, James Vince got out in the same way that you've seen him get out six times before. Yeah, letting you behind the fourth wall to a certain extent. Jeff and I are right at the end of each day, and, and, and there's always discussions about whether we're going to return to familiar terrain, such as Steve Smith's statistics or Nathan Lyon's statistics, as it was in 2017, and yep. digging back through our old spreadsheets and all the rest. And we didn't get a chance to do that in Sydney because Smith didn't make it to 100. But if he did, I guarantee the piece I would have written. Yep. I already know what it would have said because you, you know, there's yeah. a rhythm isn't there that you can get to with a player when they've done something so often. Yeah, you get to a point. We almost had a sort of um, four checkbox uh, option where we said, is today a Smith piece, a Lion piece, a Warner piece, or other? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Which is why I was quite glad that Kawaja made runs. Like that Kawaja day one dismissal on Adelaide, I was yeah. gutted because I wanted to write the Kawaja Ashes 100 piece, the you know going full circle after the 37 in his test taboo back in 2011. And finally in Sydney, we got a, the chance to write that piece. And he, we answered questions after play in, in quite a forthright way and uh, it reminded me of Mark Waugh that was how I wrote it at the time because Mark Waugh used to get very frustrated and angry about being called a lazy cricketer about being someone who didn't care enough about his craft and, and Kawaja pretty much dismissed that as effusively as one can in the confines of a press conference which is quite enjoyable which, which gave us something a bit different to that, that formula you're talking about there Jeff a few shots fired and, and maybe he needs to fire a few shots mm. to defend himself against uh, that, that kind of typecasting that we've seen there's typecasting like James Vince where it's, it's self-inflicted um, mm-hmm. And then there's typecasting that's a lot less fair, which we've seen you know, dished out to quite a few players this series. I guess that is fair. One of the things that happened at the beginning of the series, one of the great things about the perspective of an end of a series is if you can recall how we felt at the start of it. Mm. And the English journalists were getting very irate yep. that they were seeing almost like a sort of campaign to undermine them as a bunch of yobs you know, that arrived in this country. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Australia... It's a, it's a very um, pleased with itself environment <laughs> in which it genuinely believes it's worked out law and order. I suppose mm. that that's something to do with its past. And, it's, right. uh, and, and so there are various campaigns here, like, you know, there's the One Punch campaign. There's, and these are all very worthy campaigns, but it's Australia is sort of 
governed by this. It seems mm. to me, no jaywalking and all. It's an incredibly law-based, rule-based society. Yes, while um, maintaining this myth that we're somehow a bunch of knockabout anti-authoritarian larrikins. Exactly, exactly. We just is, want you to obey yeah. the walk signal. All right. <laughs> if it's a red man, you don't start crossing. But also, we'll overthrow the governor because of rum. Precisely. So it, it gets very confusing for the English when they're over here, especially when suddenly. <laughs> Their team, of all teams, is stereotyped as a bunch of boozing yobs. Yep. And this is a team that's got Moeen Alley in it and Chris Wokes, you know, Mark Wood. There are, there are teetotalers in this England team, more than there probably ever have been since the 1870s. So it started with antagonism and it started with this sense that everyone was out to get England and there was the sledging issue, there was the head-butting, there was Bancroft arriving in that press conference at the end of the first test in what was so clearly horribly manufactured you know the day before Bairstow had been a violent yob the next day Bancroft's just making out that he's a bit of a weirdo and this was all sort of spooky and mind games and actually by the end of it by the end of Sydney all of that had dissipated they were just playing cricket and they were repeating the same mistakes with each other the antagonism had gone until whoever it was I suppose it was Cricket Australia decided on that magnificently naff presentation <laughs> which which I suppose reopened the odd wound but you know but by that stage everyone was so exhausted their sort of eyebrows were raised oh well we're in Australia we've got to expect that it's almost as if the English forget what it's like being in Australia every four years and then by the end of it they're entirely accommodated to it a little like childbirth where drugs get pumped into the brain to make sure that you can yes. actually remember the full nature of the experience so that you're willing to go through it again I think so yeah but, but all that said people at home will be listening well People in England, anyway, will be listening, thinking, oh, why are they all complaining about being out in Australia? I mean, it's a first world country with lots and lots of lovely bars and the greatest brunch in the world. I mean, Melbourne's contribution to society is to produce the greatest brunch you will ever find. It is very civilised. It's very beautiful. The weather, for the most part, despite being rained on on 43 out of 63 days that I've been here now, (laughs) is perfectly clement and exceptional. And yet there is something unique about the experience of coming to Australia as a broadcaster just seeing the pitches you know in England you're always on the lookout for wickets wickets is what what drives games forward and watching this series I suddenly became aware that Australian pitches at the moment do not generate wickets only the batsmen generate wickets or exceptionally good fast bowling so you could find yourself watching sessions of play as a broadcaster in which the admirable Steve Smith would be batting or Sean Marsh but you know Sean Marsh is not a world beating cricketer and he was up against at least two exceptionally good bowlers in Anderson and Broad but you really thought there's no way they can get out on this so it sort of made the cricket something the like of which I'd not really seen before there was an inevitability to what was happening I was having to adjust to the nature of pitches that did, that had no sideways movement you were looking into the sky and thinking oh that's a cloud maybe clouds make a difference in Australia no <laughs> nope. clouds are dry you know <laughs> or at least they don't induce swing pitches are rock hard and yet not necessarily fast yep. all these things you're adjusting to and you know the England team took too long to adjust to it yeah as a broadcaster here but you weren't four years ago on the corresponding series you haven't been out here for Ashes series in the past did, did it even as an observer a close observer of the whole spectacle was it so much different to what you would have thought when you were watching it back at home in the, in the middle of the night and that sort of quintessential England experience through your life until now yes and no y- yes in that what was different was that I had to relearn cricket all the things that you expect because as a broadcaster and commentator what you're doing is trying to set up situations and tell the listener at home what they might expect I've talked about it before the bomb under the table in the Hitchcock scene do you cut to the bomb or do you just ignore it so what the commentator does is show you the bomb how are they going to get Warner out how are they going to get Smith out what's the ball doing I had to relearn those things because 
a new ball and old ball behave differently from the mm. way they do in England. The balls themselves are different. The pitches are different. The atmospheric conditions had, had mm. different consequences. So it was kind of fascinating because I was watching a totally different kind of cricket. I played my first game in Australia here on the 23rd of December. And you go and tap the pitch. And in England, as you guys will know, because you play cricket in England, it's a very different noise. It's kind of squelch. It's sort of... And in Australia, there's this plinking noise, almost like you're sort of clicking a fingernail against the champagne glass. And it's really like, wow! <laughs> the surface is different. The terroir is different. The very essence of cricket is different. So it was different from what I expected because you have to be here to experience it. But it was the same in that wonderfully shouty Australians at the Gabba did wonderfully shouty things in that last hour and a quarter of the third day when England found themselves batting um, yep. and it was getting dark and Cummins, Hazelwood, Stark were flying in to Mark Stoneman in his first test in Australia and England lost two quick wickets and he and Root batted for about 45-50 minutes before the close of play and it was spellbinding and I got to commentate the last 25 minutes and the hairs on my arms were standing up, the noise of the gabatoir, the speed of the bowling, the intensity of the competition, the fact that it was the first test and both sides had been at each other. You know, and they, at, at that stage, we had a really good Ashes series, if you remember. Well, I remember you said at the day. time, that night at the close, you said that was the most exhilarating cricket you've ever seen. It, well, it was. First, most exhilarating cricket I've ever been involved in. I mean, you know... It's I, easy to forget, of course, because we, we've just talked about how yeah. to have the series. But you go back to Brisbane, halfway through that test match, exactly the halfway mark, actually, sort of drinks in the middle session of day three. That was when Steve Smith had wickets fall around him. There's two wickets with the new ball, the second new ball, I should say. And Pat Cummins walks out. At that point in time, Australia are 100 runs in deficit, looking towards conceding a, a fairly significant first innings deficit on the whole. And mm. that's a real day's test cricket. It's kind of easy to forget and retrofit that the whole thing was a disaster but it did, it did have its moments at the start it was key I mean I, I sort of identified four or five moments in the series one of them was Vince's run out because mm. at that stage and it was a brilliant piece of fielding by Lyon but in many ways notwithstanding how he bowled to left-handers that might have been his key individual contribution mm-hmm. to the series well, Smith said it as well after pl- after the series was over Smith said that was the turning point hard for a, a turning point to occur on the opening day perhaps but the most influential no, moment in right. the series yeah. I think yeah. he's right because if it, he goes on to 100 Vince goes on to 100 at that point and, and he was looking good you know Australia would have figured him out later in the series but you've always got that honeymoon period as a new player where maybe you get a couple of freebie innings because they haven't figured you out yet well and also i think england would have ended up at least with a draw out of brisbane i think it would have made a big mm. difference it was a flat deck um, it was very hard to take wickets australia gave those first seven wickets away i mean that there was most of england's players gave their wickets away it was very much, much both sides being quite nervous mm. And you sense that if England had got 4, 20, 4, 30, then, you know, the whole tenor of the series would have been different. That was the game when I first got introduced to local nonsense. So a Queenslander told the me the on, mayor of on day two. <laughs> oh, it was superb. This Queenslander came Hello, up to my name's local nonsense. <laughs> you know, you, know you, you can never take a wicket to spin on day two at the Gabba. This yeah. kind of local nonsense bedeviled me wherever I went. There'd right. been some Victorian telling me that no swing bowler has ever taken a wicket after tea on day three. Or, <laughs> you know, it was absolute drivel follows you wherever you go. But, yep. but because it's all due to you, you're watching it and you're watching it with such intensity. And that match was really, really intense. It was the closest 10-wicket win 
I have ever seen <laughs> in, in cricket history. And I don't think there'll ever be a closer 10-wicket win. It was bizarre. Well, it was only two hours, in, well, an hour and a half, I think it was, into the fifth day. And I know you, you spoke at the time, Dan, about how this pretty much hopefully will dispel any notion of moving to four-day test cricket. Because had it been four-day test cricket, they wouldn't have had a result anywhere. Now, I, I, it turns it on its head. The one prediction I made in the paper, I think it was, before the test series, was that not a single test would go to a fifth day, as, as, it was, as was the case in 2015. But and this did go the journey, and hopefully we can sort of move that conversation on a bit. We did need the fifth days. I mean, I, I get where the authorities are coming from. I spoke to Phil Walker of Wisden on this, mm. and between us, we've got a blueprint for how you can make four-day cricket work. It's very complicated. It involves extra overs per day. It involves penalties. It involves having the provision to make up time on a fifth day. None of it is helping the broadcaster, by the way. It's only to help the spectator. Mm. I'm not interested in helping the broadcaster. I don't sure. think that's the purpose of cricket. But you're right. They all went the journey, and they all went the journey in part because despite there being a massive disparity between the two teams, which would normally create lots of four-day games or even the occasional three-day game, the pitches were so disappointing. I mean, dismal. The Gabba pitch was ghastly. The Melbourne pitch was a disgrace. The Sydney pitch did something. I mean, I'll be fair to it, but at not a great pace. Perth was, for my money, too flat, even if it was a bit fast. And, and the Adelaide pitch was saved by the fact it got played under lights. You know, yeah. if that, you played that pitch from 11 till 6, it wouldn't have been a great pitch. Test cricket needs pitches. If you don't have good pitches to play on, mm. look at what's happening at the moment with South Africa and India. Mm. They've got sporting wickets. Stuff happens. Yeah. I don't mean by that everyone wants to see sides being bowled out for 200. But it's kind of pointless if you wake up in England at... 12.30 or 1 o'clock in the morning or something and you switch the TV on Australia are batting and you think okay well they're going to go at about 90 runs a session and they might lose two wickets at most so I'll switch on again after tea and they'll have got you know they'll now be 230 for three yep. I mean that's just tedious or they end up going at 45 runs a session because there's so little pace in the pitch you know they can't be dismissed but they're also not scoring runs that was what gave rise to that sense of inevitability I think it, it was every time Australia batted and every time it got to Steve Smith you'd think well he's not going to get out on this and therefore effectively the contest is almost over at that point. Um, is that not, though... I mean, cause a lot of people say this, but we've got to be admiring of Smith mm. because England's batsmen are also playing on that pitch, albeit against faster bowlers. But somehow, Smith had the mental capacity to keep... Yeah, and it is test cricket, after all. Yep. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to play devil's advocate because it, he was remarkable, especially yep. the innings in Brisbane. I think that was his best innings of the lot. Yeah, well, I think there's an art to this, isn't there? I, th- I can cop playing on a flat one. I think... A generation ago, it was all right that Adelaide was a road and that they made to get out of the blocks, you needed 500 runs in the first innings. And batting second, you needed 500 to compete. Knowing that Perth was going to be quick, go back 25 years in Melbourne, it would stay low on the last day, yep. that it was going to break up in Adelaide eventually, that <coughs> Sydney it would drag. There were different dynamics from city to city. It's that mm. for some reason along the yep. way, this homogenised preparation, perhaps it is to do with drop-ins, we're not horticulturalists, of course, but you know that makes it hard being journalists watching the process. We're not that familiar with how they do it. Right. We should know more about it, probably. But, but we saw um, a pitch yesterday see the end for the ODI at the same ground at Melbourne. I mean, they'd have to put a grass on. Well, that was Mark Wood gets the ball to fly through at nose high. It's not sure. just because he's bowling at 89 miles an hour. It's because of that pitch. And it wasn't just Wood either. I should add Plunkett no. did the same thing when he came into the attack. It, it was, it, I think the... Cummins t- as well. You know, Cummins t- Tim Payne was almost keeping on the edge of the fielding restriction yeah. circle yeah. to Pat Cummins. Which he, which he wasn't doing no. during the test match. Absolutely. Well, during the test match with the second slip of Jimmy carrying. Anderson, uh, often... I mean, Jimmy isn't bowling at the same pace, obviously, but you can't have a situation where Joe Root at second slip is up with the helmet on. I can kind of cop it with third slip late in a test match, but 
that felt wrong from the get-go. It, it was yep. easy to tell what was going to happen there. Anderson yeah. called it himself at stumps on day one in Melbourne. I know we spoke a lot about the pitch in Melbourne. I don't want to dwell on it for much longer, but it is something that I think we can all take out of this series is that between now and four years' time, someone needs to make an intervention somewhere um, because, as James Sutherland's made the point before, the most important yeah. element of test cricket being successful is the surface. And in Australia, we're dropping the ball at the moment. You'd almost be better off with a one-day-style wicket where it is relatively flat and it's good for batting, but there is at least speed and bounce in it you know you'd yeah. as a test bowler you'd, you'd rather have that option where okay the batsman can play through the line and there might be some big scores but at least you're in the game somehow yeah sure I think that's right it's it, it, whether it's pace or whether you know it's going to deteriorate I thought Perth was a great wicket because the big cracks down the middle yeah. came eventually it was legitimately fast on day one and I, I didn't mind it was a road in the middle I think that's okay I think that's part of test cricket being able to play in when it's really hard as a bowler and when it's very hard to find anything out of the surface that's an element of the game but it's not the whole game and strategically as a batting side to be able to make sure that you're the ones batting when conditions are good you yeah know, we saw that come in a lot in the day night test match where you didn't want to be batting under lights but it comes into play with a wicket like Perth I wouldn't be surprised at all if in four years time we have a couple of day night Ashes test matches that certainly we'll have two next year um, when there's six test matches in Australia as per what we had in 16-17 I wouldn't yep. be at all surprised if they try and find a second day night test match in there which we'll hate as print journalists but, but as a spectacle and what you mentioned before Dan about the, the changing mm. conditions after dark it's, it's incredibly exciting cricket they just got to get the scheduling right. I think that's the main thing with day-night cricket. It's too cool. The summer isn't quite mature enough in Adelaide in November for it to quite work. People leave too early. Well, I, th- I think your idea for the schedule is absolutely spot on. I think Brisbane surely should be a day-night game because it's warm yep. and that pitch is too moribund at the moment and needs something to, to make it difficult yep. and to create a spectacle. I think your suggestion is spot on. I mean, Australians, lovely people that they are, seem to think that they've created a tradition if they do something in the same way for 20 years. I mean, <laughs> you know, that just doesn't sound too pompous. A tradition in my country takes 800 years. You know? <laughs> and 20 years is not is not reason enough. And that's what the New Year's test in Sydney finishing the summer, that is... 20 summers old, that tradition. That was not the way until yeah. 98, 99, which is the leaping off point, I think. It's that this doesn't need to be the way. It's not been the way forever. It's been the no, way for can, four Ashes series. You can play test matches in January. I mean, yeah. your, your point is a very solid one. You know, you, you, if you flip the ODIs round and you play them first, mm-hmm. you do a couple of things. You create a kind of a moose-bouche. Uh, you make it possible mm. to believe that Steve Smith can get out as well. So yep. you sort of give the opposition a muscle memory of what it's like to see him leave the field of yep. play uh, <laughs> on his own. Just like um, 05. When it went with um, yeah, with, 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 with Jason Gillespie, I think being hit out of the attack in that series. Yeah. Kevin exactly. Peterson got Kevin his way Peterson. into the test side based on that. Yeah. Mike, exactly. Mike Hussey should have made it into the Absolutely. Australian test side based on his one-day form. Simon Joe showed he was a match winner. All these things happened. Yeah. In, we all remember it, though, don't yeah. we? Do you remember and what happened in the 09 one-day series after the Ashes concluded? I know Tim Payne made 100. That's about all I remember. Did Australia win them 6-1? Who knows? I can't remember. I think there were seven of them. It's crazy. And, and, and this is the thing. You see, you, you, the one-day series then becomes important because people are excited and it's new. And it's and a form line for the England. Ashes. Who's doing well? Who's going to be in? Exactly. You get a bit of that. And then the ashes start. So at the moment, you flip it the other way around. When the ashes is over, we saw yesterday with the first one day. I mean, there were we were told there were thirty-seven thousand people in the MCG. <laughs> there may have been. I doubt it. It's a huge, <laughs> cavernous stadium, and it felt kind of well. Well, the one days don't really matter then. Mm. Um, so you're, you're sort of ruining one half of the spectacle this way. If you flip them round, and I think 
I, I can't remember which test you thought should go first. Maybe it was Perth first. Perth and Adelaide, I Perth. think. Fin- finish the series in Adelaide with the day-night test under lights, you know, mm. on the long weekend, whether it's Australia Day, whether that remains Australia Day, that's it to be saying. But, you know, the, that part of the year, the end of the... But it still worked, wouldn't it? Because Australia yeah, Day is 26. Yeah. So at the moment, the series is ending on the 28th of January. That's right. If you flip around the other way, so Adelaide's the fifth test and it ends on the 28th of January, you're sorted. And, crucially, you make Melbourne and Sydney, which I, I know plenty of Australians all complain about this, but there aren't that many in Brisbane, Adelaide and Perth. Melbourne and Sydney are the two biggest and most important test matches and they should stay live. And the last time a Sydney test match was live in an Ashes series was 82-3. Wow. I mean, that yeah, is that's, that's 35 years ago. And that is daft. It's yeah. an incredible city, Sydney, with yeah. a great spectacle of a test match. Mm. And yet, Time after time after time. If this is the tradition that we want to keep, well, it's nuts because yep. <laughs> that's a yep. rubbish tradition. And we've got broader considerations in Australia as well. Jeff, I was listening to some talkback radio on the way in here today, and people were, people, p- people were calling in. And I sympathise with the callers because they were getting in and lashing, lashing administrators for the Melbourne Renegades not having Cameron White available and Aaron Finch available, and talking about the broader implications for the BBL. And I'm very sympathetic with that on the basis that now the One Day International <laughs> Series does cannibalise what is the high water mark of the Australian summer from a, from a broadcast yep. perspective, the rhythm of the summer with T20 cricket. Test cricket and BBL cricket do not have the same effect on each other. Very no. few test players are involved in BBL and vice versa, whereas yep. there's direct correlation between 20 over and 50 over cricket at this stage anyway. And you can get that all dealt with by putting the one days in November after the 50 over domestic competition, so that form line will continue from there as well. It's logical yeah. to me. It could have been done this summer, but, but I, I certainly think going forward we need to get more savvy I, about this. I raised it with Jimmy Anderson yesterday. And he was totally for it. He said, cricketers do not mind change as long as there's a logic to it. There's Mm -hmm. nothing that that they wouldn't say no to this. Another thing that people may or may not be aware of back in the UK is just how all-consuming the Big Bash League is. You know, yesterday I was in an ODI at Melbourne and the the gate man uh, saw that Jason Ryan scored loads of runs and he goes, "Uh, the Sixers will be cheesed off about that. Mm -hmm. Why is that? Well, because he's only got 57 runs in five innings. He knew his stats. He then started talking about other players that they were not able to have in their team because the ODIs were happening. I mean, these guys are taking the the BBL seriously. These are cricket fans who are taking the big bash seriously. In England, we're not aware of this because the average cricket fan that goes to a test match hasn't got the faintest clue what the standings are in the NatWest T20 Blast. It's not on every night. There's too many teams to to keep track of. There's too many teams to keep track of. Exactly. You know, guys who like their cricket in Australia Mm. are loving the big bash. And at the moment, we're playing these ODIs in front of people who they're there because there isn't a big bash game in their city that day. And there isn't a big bash game in the city that day because there's an ODI. It's kind of a circular thing. And it's... It's wrong. It's and there's crazy. no big bash anywhere in the country because there's an ODI. You know it right. before, Dan. You said we need to respect the spectators. The spectators love BBL. We need to regard that. I know we love Test cricket, and that is the product that I think we love the most, and always probably will. But if we don't respect people who come through the gates and watch on television every night with BBL T20 cricket, then we're missing a beat there as well. There is a way these things can coexist. We've got to get savvy about this. It is changing, and I think this summer will hopefully put a full stop on that. Last question for you, Dan, before you go. 13-14 was, well, whitewash, obviously, but it felt significant in that there was that Mitchell Johnson summer. There was something dramatic and exciting to take out of it. Is there anything you can take away from this summer that you will remember that will retain that kind of luster in years to come? Well, I'll never forget it because my first Ashes series and having a microphone and being able to get to tour Australia and seeing all these places for the first time. So I'll always remember it. I suppose 
There are a number of things. There's the fact that, you know, it's called the last Ashes series here was called the Pomney Shambles because everything fell apart, you know. Trot went home, Swan went home. England were losing matches in three days. It looked like, and they, you know, they're professional sportsmen, so they weren't doing it, but it looked to people at home like they were giving up. This series, what I saw was that England had tremendous will within their group. Joe Root's captaincy was somehow, it was a cohesive influence uh, there was a one point, it's a crazy thing to remember, isn't it? But I think Australia was 629 for seven at Sydney. And England had been out in the field that was the hottest day in Sydney in 79 years. They'd be, they were out there for their seventh session. <laughs> and Moe Nally chased a straight drive that went right up to the boundary's edge and hauled it back in to ensure that Australia only got three runs instead of four. Now, that is above and beyond the call of duty. That run was always going to make no difference whatsoever but England did not give up and it was wonderful to watch their will to defy impossible odds it was clear to them and to anybody else that the conditions they were playing in were suited to the home team which is true of too much cricket it's true in India it's true in England Australia were always going to win and yet somehow the English took every game to the fifth day partly because the Australians batted so long but they didn't they didn't ever get away from them I think I'll also take away from it the incredible power of pace bowling because in England we don't tend to need it as much so we don't tend to see it as much. I mean, trying to think of genuine fast bowlers. I mean, Flintoff and his pig and Harmison in 05 were bowling fast and Duncan Fletcher wanted fast bowlers. But watching Pat Cummins change test matches on flat pitches by being the only man who could get the ball up to nose height and induce gloves behind to the keeper was thrilling and just really understanding the power of fast bowling and therefore understanding Australian culture you know Lily and Thompson these were these are sort of notions to Englishmen they're, 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 well they're terrifying ghosts of Christmas past really but when you see what why they exist and you see that they're a sort of necessary they're a necessary weapon in Australia that was thrilling Cummins particularly I think is one of the most exciting cricketers I've seen in a long time a really good batsman as well really intelligent cricketer I love cricketers who assess situations and do the right thing. You know, stark contrast, Mitchell Stark's fine man, I'm sure, but he was batting at eight and batting like an idiot. And Cummins comes in at nine and bats like he's got the best technique in the side. He's got better technique than Smith, than Warner, than anyone. You know, gl- glorious. His 40-odd in Brisbane, mm. you could argue, was as match-winning as Smith's 140. And I guess the other thing that's really, really notable in Australia is that cricket is a game that's played by the people it's not a class game. Everybody plays cricket. I was at an ODI warm-up game in Dremoyne in Sydney, and I was looking out the back, and there's this sort of green sward that was filled with kids, and it sent shivers down your spine as this nine-year-old lad, he can't have been more than nine, ran in, left arm over, and bowled perfectly pitched Yorkers to another kid who was digging them out and then you know actually improvising and playing reverse swipes on there there were 15 kids and six of seven of them were girls and when the girls batted they batted and meant it and they walloped it and no boy expected not to be hit by the girl it was it was equal it was egalitarian it was everybody was playing regardless of accent and class and color and gender and in england it isn't so, you know, it sort of upsets me in a way because the sport I love is a narrow pastime in England. But it also thrills me that in Australia it is a broad religion and, 
you know, we go to Melbourne, you discover everyone plays Aussie rules and they don't really play it in Brisbane. People play rugby league in, where is it, Sydney, but they don't play it anywhere else. The one game that unites this country is cricket, and it's wonderful to see. It's brilliant. Beautifully said. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. We'll be back in a moment with our end-of-season Ashes Awards. But uh, Daniel Norcross, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. I'm Daniel Norcross, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is The Final Word, presenting The Guardian's Ashes podcast. It's the end of term, the end of season, the end of year 12 formal, and it's time for the awards, the best and the worst, the most likely to succeed. As we look back over these these few weeks, these few months that we're, we've been working on the women's ashes, the men's ashes since the middle of October, it's been a long road, Adam. Yeah, school's out for summer and I feel like summer's barely even begun, Jeff. I'm about to go to Heathrow, go back to bitter old England in the middle of a deathly winter. It was snowing the other week, apparently, but... I was calculating it earlier. I reckon between the two of us, we've written over 300,000 words about this series, the men and women, over the course of the last three months. So I'm not quite sure what I'm doing with my life. But that's that's what we've been up to. And I agree. Let, let's pace through some of the, the best and worst of it. Oh, before we go on, how good was Daniel Norcross? That last answer he gave about the about the egalitarian nature of cricket in Australia. I, I can't wait to sit down with Daniel when we're back in the UK and having a, a much longer conversation about his wonderful story in cricket because it's an absolute cracker. Yeah, we'll look to keep doing that as we push on with the Final Word podcast throughout this year and, and, and onwards. We'll keep uh, finding the most interesting characters in the game that we can to interview and open their stories up. We've had some great ones already with Vic Marks, Jason Gillespie and, and uh, our hit list has got longer and longer by the week rather than shorter so we've, we've got plenty to tick off. But let's tick off some of the best and worst of this Ashes series. The show-stopping moment for you, what was the mm. best individual moment? I almost feel a bit glib just repeating that Steve Smith's 100 in Brisbane, but that was the bit when he was thumping his chest and how evocative that was, how familiar that was after what we saw in Pune back in, I think it was late February. Uh, you described that as his best innings for Australia. I think that's on a par with it for the fact that it was his slowest as well just showed you know, reserves of confidence and reserves of concentration that really set Australia up in the Test match and ultimately the series. And not to retread the ground that Daniel Norcross did earlier, but for me, I think that Nathan Lyon run out of James Vince. Yep. Just in terms of the sheer technique of it, mm. when you're throwing the ball not across your body, but in the same direction as your body's travelling in, trying to sort of chicken wing the ball out from underneath your own elbow, it was a ridiculous piece of athleticism and right up there with some of the catches he took off his own bowling. Yeah, I think that's right. It said a lot about his confidence as well. Like Nathan Lyon was not a confident cricketer 12 months ago, and the fact that he could pull that off at the first time of asking on day one of a series when he wasn't really expected to make an impact, he did both both with ball and, and in the field as well and, and really set up a, an excellent summer for him. Worst haircut, I'm giving this to Tom Curran for that, yeah. that sort of speed stripe thing that he had going with the, the shaved sides and the kind of Pepe Le Pew pelt on the top. <laughs> well, I, I have a bit of time for it, actually. I, I, I don't think the, the Australians did themselves any favours with their hair, generally. The, the moustaches didn't stay a la Mitch in 2013-14, so something to work on there. A bit too, bit, bit too similar, a bit too samey, this side, on, on, the, uh, on expressing themselves with the hair. It was all a bit late 1930s, wasn't it? They yeah. sort of looked like they were about to go and join up to fight the Germans or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, that could be a good question of itself who'd be the most likely to sign up I think it might be David Warner after his comments before the series he puts himself at the front of the queue for that best media performance 
Oh, Cameron Bancroft's hard to look past, isn't it? That was that was perhaps the best media performance I've ever seen. And I worked in politics for a very long time and saw some corkers over the years, uh, backs against the wall stuff. But for pure comedic timing, he, he was spot on. Just trying to think of any more earnest contributions. Jimmy Anderson after day five in Sydney. I know you were in hospital at the time, Jeff, but that was quite good as well. But, you know, I think you're seeing when you're winning and there were some lovely comments made by various triumphant Australian batsmen as they came through the press conference through the course of the, the series as well. They certainly enjoyed themselves. Worst media performance I'd have to give to young Johnny Bairstow for his headbutt presser where he came in, <laughs> came in to explain what had happened and then categorically failed to explain what had happened. Yeah, that was a stinker. I think when Trevor Bayliss came in repeatedly and said they were going pretty well, that might be up there as well. It was uh, it, it, it was confusing, his strategy there, because he knew he was going to get towed up regardless. Sometimes you've got to show a bit of contrition and all the rest, but he stuck to the party line. That uh, that was actually on my list. Well, what was oh, right. the worst <laughs> Trevor Bayliss denial of reality presser? Because yeah. there were about 10. Yeah, yeah. It became a, a, an ongoing theme of the series, didn't it? He'd come in in front of the media. And I actually really enjoy the way he goes about it as a coach more generally I think he cops a lot of grief but certainly his media performances um, yeah it was uh, if, it's if you can repeat the key line enough maybe you'll avoid the bad story but the key line was often I thought we had a pretty good day and yeah. he'd be saying that when they you know the day had been say two for 320 with Steve Smith batting all day again I thought we bowled pretty well today he'd say well the one who gave the most headlines was his deputy Paul Farbrace who'd come in you know bad day Farby as it were like we have bad day Buff with the Australian side when, when they've performed badly they send their assistant coach in mm. uh, and he was the one that gave all the headlines so I say more Farby if you ask me how about um, in terms of worst media performance maybe Jimmy Anderson's column that didn't do them yes. any favours I actually felt Jimmy was stitched up uh, about the comments that he made on, on BBC on his podcast with Felix White how he, he made a reference to the Australian bowling lineup not being that deep after the big three he got absolutely smashed for that and then Jackson Bird played at the MCG and didn't go so well and the fact that we didn't actually have to see the depth of Australian bowling really tested when the series was live I thought it was quite a valid comment Best Shane Watson impression went to Mitchell Marsh. Oh, yeah. For his, that, that 181 day at the Wacker where it was just front foot down the pitch, bashed through the line. He hit everything as clean as a whistle. He may have a day as good as that in his career, but he may not. And it, and it almost doesn't matter. He's oh, done it now. Now, you, now you've said that. I think that the response to that might have been my showstopper. I mean, those who've read me over the years know I'm a massive Mitchell Marsh fan. I went down outside to watch him bring up the 100 because you can't... You can't cheer and clap when someone makes 100 in the press box it's, it's frowned upon apart from the day when Watto made 100 in a T20 and I gave him a standing ovation but you're not meant to do that uh, so I thought I'd go down with the punters and <laughs> he was very emotional and as were the Perth crowd it was, it was a wonderful moment actually the most responsive I've ever seen a press box was in Cardiff in 2015 the second innings when Watto was given LBW oh, yes. and he had to review it because they were 5 for 70 mm. or whatever it was and they still had two reviews in hand and you could see the look on his face going I don't want to do this I know they're going to make fun of me but I have to do it so he goes for the tea sign and the whole English press pack just went up as one. You might remember I actually went down to the Australian race to document that. I was taking photos of Shane Watson, what I assume would be his last innings for Australia and being in the members stand, I think it's the members stand on the, on the eastern side of the Cardiff ground where he walked back in through the tunnel and the amount of abuse he was copying. That, I remember it well, trust me. <laughs> uh, best wicket keeping. Good question. They both did really well, didn't they? Yeah. I think that I think after the first day, Payne puts a sharp catch down off Nathan Lyon. Um, you wrote about it at the time, Jeff. It, it could have been uh, reflective of his lack of first-class cricket that year. A lot of pressure on a guy coming in after such an absence, but he was very tidy thereafter. And I'm struggling to think of a mistake Bairstow made with the gloves. I think they were excellent.
Yeah, absolutely. And and both of them, you know, did well with the bat as well. Besto in particular, I think there was pressure on him. He came up the order in Perth and was was probably left down too low, too long in Brisbane and Adelaide. But um, once he came up the order, was able to contribute. Yeah, and I hope Payne is there in a couple of years. I think it would be nice to go full circle and, and go back to England where he made his debut back in 2010 and, and finish off his international career. He'd be nearly 36 by then, I think I'm right in saying. Maybe 35. Either way, he'd be well into his 30s. If he gets another tour of England, I think that'd be very nice. So would he be the best smoky selection made by the Australian panel? I think so. I mean, no, he can't be, though, can he? Sean Marsh. We, we talk a lot about Sean Marsh, Jeff, and you've written more words about him than, well, anyone in the but, world. Then he's healthy. Like, I think, yeah, then he's healthy, yes. And you had a lovely piece when he had his redemption moment at Adelaide. That could have been classified the showstopper as well, for that matter. But the way that Sean Marsh performed in Brisbane was arguably as important as it was in Adelaide. And the cherry on top uh, was what he did in Sydney when he filled his boots for, for his, uh, I think it's his high-scoring test cricket there, and, uh, and certainly enjoyed that. It takes a fair bit to bat when it's 57 degrees outside as well. There was a lot about uh, how easy those runs were with the England attack destroyed, but to go out there and concentrate and, and bat through for a, a session and a half, I think it was, on the fourth day in Sydney, that's not for nothing either. I suppose growing up in Perth helps train you for that better than anywhere <laughs> else. Hope so, yeah. Best performance in a beaten side? Hmm. Jimmy at Adelaide in the second innings was pretty special. I was really glad to see him take his first five-wicket back. The amount of criticism he cops in Australia, I guess Alistair Cook, they weren't beaten at Melbourne, but his double century there kind of fits into that category as well. I'm trying to think, I don't think there was there was any other real blow him down, knock him out. Maybe David Milan in Perth, but then again, yeah. he did throw it away, didn't he? you got to remember that he got to 100 and should have made a massive 100, really, and, and just at the moment they were about to bludgeon Nathan Lyon out of the attack, he, he went for an extravagant dance and drive and top edge, and that was that, a collapse of 6 for 60, and it pretty much ended the test match there, and then it might have been 6 for 40, actually, they lost, didn't they? It was a, it was a disaster that morning. And what are we going to take out of this series? What are we going to look back and, and remember in, in many years' time? Or will it just all blur into a, a long period where far too many Ashes tests yeah. were played? Yeah, well, look, I, I think that we'll look back and, and see it as one of the great individual performances in Test cricket from Smith. The only completed series over five Test matches or more where there's been a higher average at the end of it was Bradman in... 1930, of course, yeah, 1934, he made a truckload of runs as well. But, I mean, that says something, the sheer dominance he had over England, the response that was given around the press box or around the ground whenever he was dismissed. It might be a very long time, if at all, when we see something quite like that. So I think that's probably the main takeout. And also, I, I do hope it is the, the catalyst for a bit, of a, a bit of a rethink about a few things. We go on a lot about scheduling, but scheduling and, and wickets and, and making sure that the, the form of the game that we love and cherish is given the best chance to succeed in a very competitive marketplace going forward. And making sure that there is competitiveness in test cricket when Australia goes back to England in 2019, when England comes back the next time. By the end of that 2019 series, we will have been at 25 Ashes tests in six years. Yeah, right. Um, That's a lot. And almost none of them have been particularly competitive. Mm. 2013 had a couple of close games. Mm. Mm. Um, and that, So that was probably the highest quality series, even if the 3-0 scoreline doesn't necessarily reflect that in the history books. The one player we've probably missed in all this conversation is Pat Cummins. I wrote at the end of the series that I think he could end up being the most important cricketer on the planet in 2018. I've seen nothing to disabuse me of that yet. I think that everything we, we witnessed in this series suggests that he's got the ability to hopefully everything cross that so he doesn't have any more injuries and have any more setbacks off the field that he can have a very long and illustrious career for Australia because he's such an exciting player. Not just the pace that Dan spoke about but it was the accuracy for mine. It's very hard to bang the ball in halfway and have it land somewhere between the, the shoulder and the hip which is a lot of the time what he was doing. It was probably more important that his bouncer were the balls that he bowled in the ribcage region which were never um, sort of uh, powder puff half trackers there to be hit. They were always penetrated 
penetrative and he's a very gifted batsman as well as Dan pointed to. And it's the leadership, it's the willingness to take responsibility, to take up the mantle when the team needs it, even as a relatively junior and younger player. That was what really stood out. And, you know, I did write that he could be Australia's first full-time fast bowling captain. Mm. And some people think I'm crazy, and maybe I am. No, I don't but, think you, you know. are. Jason Gillespie thinks you're crazy. You know, yeah, when we asked him this question on the pod a few weeks ago, but if anyone's going to do it, you think someone that with the disposition that he has, he's so calm, and he's gone through so much adversity as well, just to get on the park. I think he's got the right sort of characteristics. He's built the right way to be a captain we'll say as Billy Joel said you may be right I may be crazy but it just may be a lunatic you're looking for Adam let's get you to the airport so you can get back to Heathrow and this has been the final word presenting the last Guardian Ashes podcast but not the last final word the podcast will carry on through the year some episodes may be up on the Guardian others will be on our existing networks so just make sure to subscribe to that you can use iTunes Audio Boom Stitcher Google Play SoundCloud as Shakira said wherever whenever you can also email finalwordcricket at gmail.com to let us know what topics we should be looking at or who we should interview next. Make sure to leave us a rating or a review wherever you're listening or pass us on to friends and family. Every little bit helps. And uh, we'll be back with you very soon, Adam. Can't wait. Until next time, you have been listening to The Final Word. That'll be the same we've been doing for centuries. Sorry if I ran out to empty, wrote this so you know what I meant here. I had to get